You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing our our study of uh, this uh, little passage here on uh, thinking about the topic of worship as you as you may figured out or know, this is sometimes considered the call passage of Isaiah, his calling um, and into prophetic ministry. And, and in it, he sees this vision of the living God. And, uh, but it teaches us so much about uh, authentic biblical worship and, and our response. And uh, so if you're just joining us, we've already noted at the beginning of the passage that uh, worship begins with the revelation of God. It, um, for Isaiah, it was a vision. Uh, for us today, it, it is God as revealed in the Scriptures and through His uh, Word. Uh, we've also noted that God reveals Himself um, in His Word in Christ, and, and because of that, it leads to a confession of sin. The biblical worship always uh, leads to that, uh, to a sense of, of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. And this morning we come to kind of the third element of biblical worship, and that is a proclamation of the gospel. Because there's a, a, a wonderful display of redemption that takes place in verses 6 and 7. So let's look up the text this morning, again, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing our praises to you. And now, Lord, we are, as we continue to worship by setting our minds and our thoughts to your word and what you are saying to us, Lord, from it, give us ears to hear. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I, I read this account, this, um, 
this what happened to Isaiah here, it's hard for me to think about and, and, and measure the impact that this had on his life. Um, I've tried to think about what he saw. I've tried to envision it in my, in my mind and what it must have been like, this experience. But it seems like uh, it, this shaped everything about Isaiah from this point forward. And, and it, it, the message he proclaimed, uh, the way that he lived his life. Uh, and yet in the moment, it must have been a terrifying experience. As Isaiah encounters the living God in all of his majestic holiness, he's, he's literally overcome with conviction of his own sin. I mean, you hear it in his cry, woe is me. I mean, judgment be upon me because of my sins. He says, I'm lost. I'm literally, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. It is the inevitable result of being in the presence of God who is most holy, that there's the recognition of the, the greatness of God that in turn is followed by a recognition of our own personal sin before Him. You remember that King Uzziah, mentioned there in verse 1, had been struck with leprosy by God um, and banned from the worship service of God's people because of his leprosy. Leviticus 13.45 says that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. That word unclean stands out because it seems to me, that's the word Isaiah used, that Isaiah felt himself in, in some spiritual condition in the same way, that cut off from God because of his sin, uh, because of his own uncleanness, he says. My, my mouth is unclean, facing uh, judgment and death. He's understanding the situation that he's in before God because no one can see God in his holiness and survive. And so his vision of the glory of God had reduced him in, in his own estimate to, to the level of, of, of being unclean like a leper, of being guilty and defiled, even like his nation that he was preaching to. He said, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's always a part of worship that should leave us uncomfortable in our sins. If we're really worshiping the living, holy God, it will always bring us to that place, to a certain measure. And, and I would tell you, uh, church, though conviction of sin is uncomfortable, and we don't like that, we don't like uh, that, how that makes us feel, it is precisely at this point that we should strive for and give thanks for, because at the conviction of our sin is where God initiates His greatest work in us. We don't like it, we don't pick it, we don't choose it, it's not comfortable, and yet it's exactly what we need. What happens next 
is nothing short of, of miraculous and amazing and wonderful. At the point of his conviction and confession of sin, a place where Isaiah literally says, I'm, I'm, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm facing annihilation and destruction, I'm not going to live, there's no hope, I'm at the end of my rope because of this, there's no way I can go on, having been devastated by the holiness of God, this glorious thing happens. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Can you imagine anything greater in this moment than this? A seraphim, this fiery guardian of the holiness of God, brings a burning coal from the altar, where an altar where there's a sacrifice that has been made. A life has been taken on behalf of another to atone for sin, to pay for it. Vine writes this, a, a seraphim could not touch the sacrifice or that which arose from it, but he brought the effects of it. With the coals, he touched the prophet's mouth, that, that member the uncleanness of which he had deplored. His iniquity was removed and his sin expiated. The guilt of his sin taken away. The penalty of his sin paid for by someone else who died in his place. You think about this. Isaiah didn't do anything here, did he? He, he brought absolutely nothing to the table. I mean, the sacrifice just appeared. It was, it was, it was a unilateral action of, of God alone. God did it all. Isaiah did nothing. God acting on behalf of Isaiah provided a sacrifice in him in, in order to remove the guilt of his sins and therefore to take the judgment away, to take the ruin away, to take the sin, the guilt of his sin away and restore his relationship with God. It was the only way that Isaiah survived this vision of God. It was the only thing that kept him alive. This sacrifice this atonement for his sin. It's really remarkable. Isaiah had been brought face to face with his sin before God and all of the, of the, the judgment that he is going to face, but now he also comes face to face with his redemption. And he learns that it's all by the grace of God. It's incredible, isn't it? Are you all with me? Am I the only one that thinks this is absolutely incredible? It's clearly incredible because of what 
you and I know and have seen in hindsight. Because it's clearly, this is clearly an anticipation of the work of Christ for us, isn't it? You understand that the vision of the sacrifice here that atoned for Isaiah's sin was none other than Jesus Christ Himself. This was a, a demonstration, a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus to Isaiah. Luther said that Isaiah saw himself first as he truly is, a sinner who was undone, and, and next he saw as one who had experienced this redemption. Here's what he writes. It turned out for the salvation of the prophet that he was thrust down to hell so that he might be led away and lead others away from that uncleanness of the law to the purity of Christ so that he alone might reign. Here now, a resurrection from the dead takes place. And you don't have to think about this long to see the picture of that, don't you? Even in this story, written 740 years or so before Christ took on flesh, you can already see Jesus here, can't you, church? You can see even the very pattern of His life, His death and resurrection in Isaiah's worship. And you can see it in Isaiah and what he experienced from being as good as dead in trespasses and sins. And then by the grace of God, being made alive in Jesus Christ, created in Him to do good works. And that moment... New life was given to Isaiah. It was though he was raised from the dead himself in salvation. This is what accounts for the dramatic impact I think this had on his life. The fact that he saw God and lived. It changed him. He, he lived because he had confessed his sin and he found that God was merciful and gracious to him, and he found that there had been a sacrifice that had been made on his behalf to take away his guilt and to pay for his sins before God so that he could live. And you see, church, this is where biblical worship leads us. This is where Christian worship leads us, doesn't it? It begins with a revelation of God which leads us to an acknowledgement, a confession of our own sin, but then true worship, Christian worship, always leads us to a declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It proclaims the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is why, church, when we sing, it is not the music that moves us. It is the man. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who moves us. It is what He has done for us. It is the reality. It is the truth that we're singing about. The fact that we recognize that we should be dead, even this morning, dead because of our trespasses and sins. But somehow, miraculously, we look around and we are very much alive because of Jesus Christ. Do you have that sense among you? It's a reminder to us. It's a reminder that there's nothing about our worship of God that isn't defined or affected by Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. 
Bob Coughlin has written a great book on, on worship. It's called Worship Matters. And Coughlin writes this. He said, the gospel is not merely one of many possible themes we can touch on when we come to worship God. It is the central and foundational theme. And all our worship originates and is brought into focus at the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? And we see it right here even in Isaiah. And it's why, by the way, I think worship doesn't make sense until we understand the work of Christ for us. It it doesn't make sense. Worship is predicated on the gospel, on our faith, our trust in Christ, and the salvation that we have in Him. And our worship is only enhanced as we focus more and more on the work of Jesus Christ for us, because that's where it flows from. Coughlin, in his book, he goes, goes on to give four reasons why the proclamation of the gospel is so important in our worship. And uh, I've adapted these uh, for our thoughts this morning. First of all, just a reminder, and we've touched on this already, that the work of Christ enables us to worship God. It enables us. And, and it's imperative that we, under, that we understand this right from the beginning. We haven't just gathered together to, to sing songs and so forth, but, but there's something that's been done that enables us to worship Him. One of the most important, uh, significant verses on worship is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is a person who intervenes between two opposing parties to reconcile them. And so without a mediator, there's, there's little hope for reconciliation. This is the realization that Isaiah came to. All he could do was cry out in his sins before God, a, a holy God. At the end of verse 6, if the passage stopped there, there's literally no hope for him, for his life. There's a sense of desperation, of undone, of being lost, as Isaiah puts it, separated from, from God. M- most people give little thought about a need for a mediator in their relationship with God. And, and that's because we underestimate the gravity of our situation and the depth of our own sinfulness before God. When we sin, we are not sinning against one like us, but rather we are sinning against the sovereign, holy, perfect God of the universe. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, writes this, sin is cosmic treason against a perfectly pure sovereign Even the slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It's a revolutionary act, a rebellious act in which we're setting ourselves in the opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. Because God is holy and just, He must punish sin. God is not able to remain just and holy and righteous himself if he were to just sweep our sins under the rug or just kind of overlook them to forgive and forget he would not be holy and just our only hope is for a mediator 
It is for somebody who can reconcile us to a holy God, who can save us from his wrath. And church, that mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped into our place and and took the wrath that was for us on the cross. He became a substitute for us, took our punishment, dying in our place, the third day rising again. And through His work, His perfect life and death, we can now approach God in worship. You understand that before that and before you trusted Him as your Savior, you could not worship God. Ephesians 3.12 says, In whom, referring to Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. It's in Christ that we've been given access to God. It's only in Christ that we can worship Him. In Isaiah's day, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year And he would go on behalf of the people to make atonement for their sins. Coughlin articulates this well. He says, the holiest man from the holiest tribe offered the holiest sacrifice in the holiest place for the holiest peoples on the earth to attempt to draw near to God in any other way or by any other means would result in certain death. It was only done this way. But listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, it's through Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus, His perfect life, His sacrificial death, so that all who are in Christ can now approach God in worship. He enables us to worship Him. And it's important, we said this already, but I will say it again, it's why the focus of our worship service is at at our church, they're not designed uh, as a worship service for lost people so that uh, lost people will feel comfortable. That, that is not why our services are the way they are. That's not the goal and, and hope of them. If, if you're an unbeliever here today, and this is, not, uh, this is in love, but it's the truth, it's impossible for you to worship God apart from the mediator, Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so we want our worship here to be, uh, to exalt Christ. We want our worship to proclaim the gospel. Amen? So that anyone who comes in here will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and believe on Him as their Savior. But it won't be by dumbing down that message that people will hear. Here's the other thing, and it's just the truth. We cannot sing our way into the presence of God. No matter how hard we try, we can have the greatest music and singing and give it our absolute best, but worship itself cannot and does not lead us into God's presence. Only Jesus Christ leads us into the presence of God. He enables us because of 
who he is and what he's done for us. And so we must remember this church every time we gather for worship. It is only because of Christ that I am able to worship him today. This realization is important also because the work of Christ makes our worship acceptable to God. It makes our worship acceptable. We don't think about this, but the Bible talks in many places and many reasons that the Scripture says that God would reject our worship of Him. We're not just free to come and offer any worship the way that we want to worship Him. We must worship Him the way He wants to be worshipped. And so there's lots of reasons. Isaiah is focused on some of those. Isaiah 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 uh, he says uh, strong words. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And he goes on to explain why, and clearly, in chapter 29, verse 13, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God rejected their worship. It's not just the singing or the sacrifices. He wants our hearts. Amen? In other places, worship is rejected because of idolatry of the people. They came, they have all kinds of other gods that they're harboring in their hearts, more valuable than God, putting many things as priorities in their life over God. Unbelief, Exodus 30, verse 9, uh, coming to worship God in disobedience, Exodus 32. There's a story uh, with evil motives even. Jeremiah 32. I mean, even as we try to worship God according to the ways that He has set forth in His Word, there's a great sense in which we still stumble and we fail to give Him the, the worship that He deserves. You recognize that, don't you? But this is why the foundation of our worship is not in the greatness of our efforts, but it is in uh, the greatness of Christ, you see. And why our worship is, is tied to the union with Christ. It's, it's what made Isaiah's worship and service acceptable to God, the fact that he was tied to Christ in the atonement. Listen to 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, Peter speaking to us, the church, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and notice this, to offer spiritual sacrifices or spiritual worship that is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's key. How is our worship offerings acceptable to God? They are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ because of His sacrifice, because of our faith, our union with Christ. Our worship is acceptable this morning because it is joined to the sacrifice of Jesus who lives in us. Harold Best perhaps gives an illustration to explain it. He says there's only, he writes this, there's only one way to God through Jesus Christ. This means that God sees and hears all of our offerings 
perfected. God sees and hears as no human being can, all because our offerings have been perfected by the giver. This ought to be encouraging to some of you. The out-of-tune singing of an ordinary believer. The hymnic chant of the aborigine. The drum praise of the Cameroonian. Everything from the widow's might to the poured-out ointment of Mary are all at once, all of those offerings at once, humble and exalted by the strong, saving work of Jesus Christ for us. End quote. What a great quote. That's an incredible relief and joy. We do not come to worship today to try to appease God. We've not come to try to, we, we don't come thinking today, wow, if we don't pull something off, great. You know, God's not going to be happy with us. Our worship is going to be rejected. No, that's not true at all. The excellencies of our offerings to God that makes our worship acceptable is because of the excellency of Jesus Christ for us. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to glorify God with our best, Right? It doesn't mean that we, we don't, we don't want to come with prepared hearts and sincere hearts prepared to worship. It, it doesn't mean that we want to have, have the best music that we can possibly have for Him. It just means that ultimately it is our union with Christ, with His perfect sacrifice that makes our worship acceptable before God. A third reason biblical worship must proclaim the gospel is that the work of Christ best displays the glory of God. The glory of God. I know we've already seen that glory glimpsed here in Isaiah 6. He sees the sovereignty, the holiness of God lifted high up. The same God, by the way, that Moses encountered uh, years earlier, Exodus 34. You remember that story? It says the Lord passed before Moses and and proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Isaiah realized the greatness of God, but he's recognizing his own, the greatness of his sin, and, and perhaps thinking, how can we worship a God who is holy and just like this, but at the same time who by no means just clears the guilty? And a, and a God who is also merciful and gracious and forgiving and abounding? The answer to that, how can we worship that God in all of his attributes and in all of our sinfulness? The answer is that what Isaiah discovered was it's the atoning work of the sacrifice that all of the attributes of God are so on display, aren't they? You, you think about... All that's pictured here in the work of Christ for us, all of God's attributes, all of His glory shining forth. Again, Coughlin articulates it so well. In the cross of Jesus, we see the justice of God, don't we? That attribute of His justice requiring this perfect payment for sin that's been committed against a perfectly holy God. We see it in the cross. We see the justice of God. We see the holiness of God in the cross. 
Because when we look at the cross, we see him acting to judge the sin that has, that has uh, led to the fall, and he's punishing his own son, and we see all of his holiness displayed at the cross. We see the mercy of God at the cross, amen, providing a substitute for those who have been condemned. We see the wisdom of God in the cross because who would have ever dreamed this particular way of saving us? And yet God in His infinite wisdom, this glorious solution, when we were at the end of our rope, here comes Jesus on the cross for us. We see all of this and more, don't we, in the work of Christ. There's it's no wonder that Paul would write something like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, when he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where has he shown it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we see God's glory? We see it in Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. We see it in the cross as His work is lifted up. We, we could spend eternity looking at this, at this cross. We should never move on from the work of Christ for us, church. It's why it's central in our worship. It's why that when we gather together to worship, in a sense, we're gathering together to retell the gospel once again. We're gathering together to remember the gospel. We're gathering together to respond to the gospel once again. We're gathering together to worship God because of the gospel, because of what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. So we want our songs to, to proclaim that. It's important that the songs that we're singing are proclaiming the gospel. By that, it doesn't mean that every song that we sing is proclaiming the gospel, but at least some of the songs that we should sing should be proclaiming the gospel. And it means that every song that we sing is sung with the backdrop of Calvary behind it, right? So it's all about the work of Christ. How could we ever leave this? I imagine Isaiah. Do you imagine Isaiah, any scenario here where Isaiah walks away from this vision of God and knowing what has happened to him with the seraphim and the tongs and the fact that he's now cleansed from his sin, he's, he's going to live? Can you imagine him walking away and forgetting this? Or saying that I need to move on to more important things and that, that, that somehow matter more? No way. Amen? And we must not forget it either, church. Uh, the final reason the work of Christ is central in our worship is because the work of Christ is the focus of the worship of heaven. <laughs> of all the attributes and actions to worship God for, it seems that heaven is focused most on this one. There's many places that we can look, but most prominently is Revelation um, chapter 5, verse 2, John tells us of the congregation that is worshiping there and, and that vision of heaven, and they're, they're worshiping this way. Wor worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Over and over again. It's the work of Jesus Christ that is fueling their worship. It, it is central. It's the worship of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Jamila writes this, one is taken aback by the emphasis on the cross in Revelation. 
Heaven does not get over the cross as if there are better things to think about. Heaven is not only Christ-centered, but cross-centered and quite blaring about it. It never moves on from the cross. Church, I, I would say to you, if the work of Christ is central in the worship of heaven, it ought to be central in the worship of Christ on the earth. Amen? It has to be central here. Biblical worship must include the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, it's, it's hard for me to estimate the impact this vision had on Isaiah's life. When you behold God as He has revealed Himself in His Word and in Christ, it will change you. Everything that we're doing this morning in this hour is, is to be worship. It is to behold God in His Word and Christ and, and in it is what's changing us. It's changing everything about us. What we're valuing, what we're thinking about, how we're living our lives. When you encounter God and Christ in this particular way, one of two things will happen. We see it over and over and again in the Scripture. You will beg Him to leave you. It will make you uncomfortable. It, it, you will beg Him to go away, as many did in the Bible, or you will fall down and you will worship Him. You will surrender to Him, ready to do whatever He asks of you, which is what we're going to see next week when we finish the story. But what about this morning? I tell you, it's encouraging to me when I think about this story to see and be reminded of this, that when sinners come to God, He does not cast them out. Amen. What's holding you back? When sinners come to God, He atones for their sin and saves them. What's holding you back? If you already know Him, I hope that you're recognizing that each day is a new day to thank Him for the salvation that you have in Christ. Each day. A new day to learn something else about the mystery of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. And in each worship service that we gather together as, as His people, a, a chance to rehearse it once again, a chance to retell it, to remember, to rejoice in the precious good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have so much to be thankful for today, church. So little to be critical about. So much to be thankful for. Let's rejoice in our Savior now. And let's ask Him in response today um, that He might keep us near the cross. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. 
We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.